0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop event podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On Friday, August 9th, Michelle T. joined Esme Weijun-Wang for Inside the Writers Studio, one of Denver's signature reading series, bringing rising and nationally recognized authors to town for discussions, readings, book signings, and workshops.
1: Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm extremely honored to be here uh, with Lighthouse and with Michelle. I'm going to be reading from a few different uh, portions of the collected Schizophrenias, and the first section is from the very beginning of the collection called Diagnosis. Schizophrenia terrifies. It is the archetypal disorder of lunacy. Craziness scares us because we are creatures who long for structure and sense. We divide the interminable days into years, months, and weeks. We hope for ways to corral and control bad fortune, illness, unhappiness, discomfort, and death, all inevitable outcomes that we pretend are anything but. And still, the fight against entropy seems wildly futile in the face of schizophrenia, which shirks reality in favor of its own internal logic. People speak of schizophrenics as though they were dead without being dead, gone in the eyes of those around them. Schizophrenics are victims of the Russian word gibel, which is synonymous with doom and catastrophe, not necessarily death nor suicide, but a ruinous cessation of existence. We deteriorate in a way that is painful for others. Psychoanalyst Christopher Ballas despines schizophrenic presence as the psychodynamic experience of being with a schizophrenic who has seemingly crossed over from the human world to the non-human environment because other human catastrophes can bear the weight of human narrative. War, kidnapping, death, but schizophrenia's built-in chaos resists sense. Both Gibel and schizophrenic presence address the suffering of those who are adjacent to the one who is suffering in the first place. Because the schizophrenic does suffer, I have been psychically lost in a pitch dark room. There is the ground which may be nowhere other than immediately below my own numbed feet. Those foot-shaped anchors are the only trustworthy landmarks. If I make a wrong move, I'll have to face the gruesome consequence. In this bleak abyss, the key is to not be afraid because fear, though inevitable, only compounds the awful feeling of being lost. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, schizophrenia afflicts 1.1% of the American adult population. The number grows when considering the full psychotic spectrum, also known as the schizophrenia's. 0.3% of the American population are diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. are diagnosed with Schizotypal Personality Disorder. I am aware of the implications of the word "afflicts," which supports a neurotypical bias, but I also believe in the suffering of people diagnosed with the schizophrenia and our tormenting minds. This next bit is from um, an essay called Yale Will Not Save You. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out what okay is, particularly whether there exists a normal version of myself beneath the disorder in the way a person with cancer is a healthy person first and foremost. In the language of cancer, people describe a thing that invades them, so that they can then battle the cancer. No one ever says that a person is cancer or that they have become cancer, but they do say that a person is manic depressive or schizophrenic once those illnesses have taken hold. In my peer education courses, I was taught to say that I am a person with schizoaffective disorder. Person first language suggests that there is a person in there somewhere without the delusions and the rambling and the catatonia. But what if there isn't? What happens if I see my disordered mind as a fundamental part of who I am? It has in fact shaped the way I experience life. Should the question be a matter of percentages of my lifetime I've spent enough of this lifetime with schizoaffective disorder to see it as a dominant force. And if it's true that I think, therefore I am, perhaps the fact that my thoughts have been so heavily modeled with confusion means that those confused thoughts make up the gestalt of myself. This is why I use the word schizophrenic, although many mental health advocates don't. My friends with anxiety disorders, for example, tend to speak of anxiety as a component of their personalities. Laura Turner writes in her essay, How Do You Inherit Anxiety? It is from Verna Lee Boatwright Berg that I inherited my long face, my quick hands, my fear that someday soon I will do something wrong and the world will come to a sharp end. In their minds, there was no tabula rasa overlaid by a transparency of hypochondria, generalized anxiety disorder, or obsessive compulsive disorder. Such thoughts are hardwired into their minds with no self that can be untangled from the pathology they experience. Another friend's obsessive compulsive disorder has calmed significantly since she began taking Prozac. But she continues to be most comfortable when things are tidy, even though her tidiness is no longer disruptive. She still washes her hands more thoroughly than anyone I know. There might be something comforting about the notion that there is, deep down, an impeccable self without disorder, and that if I try hard enough, I can reach that unblemished self but there may be no impeccable self to reach. And if I continue to struggle toward one, I might go mad in the pursuit. And there is one last bit um, that I will read. Um, This is from an essay called On the Ward, which is about inpatient hospitalization. The patients were being driven to a prison through no fault of their own in all probability for life. In comparison, how much easier it would be to walk to the gallows than to this tomb of living humans, writes investigative journalist Nellie Bly in her 1887 expose, 10 Days in a Madhouse, which gives readers a revelatory view into a New York City lunatic asylum. Bly gained access to the hospital by pretending to be insane herself. After her admittance, Bly recounts asking for her notebook and pencil. The attending nurse, Miss Grady, tells her that she brought only a book and no pencil. I was provoked, Bly says, and insisted that I had Whereupon, I was advised to fight against the imaginations of my brain." In another part of 10 days, she says, I always made a point of telling the doctors I was sane and asking to be released. But the more I endeavored to assure them of my sanity, the more they doubted it. During my second hospitalization, which occurred in the same location as my first, I passed a nurse. How are you doing? She asked. Okay, I said, which was true. My mania and subsequent depression seemed to have been exorcised by the overdose I'd taken immediately prior to being hospitalized. And other than being frustrated by my return to the WS2 ward, life no longer felt like an intolerable sentence. The nurse smiled. But how are you really doing? I'm really doing okay. The notes I've acquired from Yale Psychiatric Institute read among other things, patient shows lack of insight. (laughs) As Bly's anecdotes and my own indicate, a primary feature of the experience of staying in a psychiatric hospital is that you will not be believed about anything. A corollary to this feature, things will be believed about you that are not at all true. My third hospitalization occurred in rural Louisiana. I told the doctor that I was a writer and had studied psychology at Yale and Stanford, which was about as believable as my saying that I was an astronaut and an identical twin born to a Russian ambassador. I later trounced the other patients in a mandatory group therapy word game, not allowing anyone else to score a point. (laughs) To do so was childish, but I was tired of being treated as though I were stupid. I do not know how my behavior in this session reflected on me from the nurses' and doctors' perspectives. It may have indicated that I was intelligent or at least book smart, two characteristics that are of dubious value in a psychiatric hospital. It almost certainly indicated that I can be a stubborn asshole. (laughs) The doctor told me in one of our rare meetings that I'd said upon emergency room intake that I believed in a conspiracy of people who were determined to hurt me. I didn't say that. I said, I said that I was feeling unsafe, but Feeling unsafe, as in feeling terror about everything and nothing in particular, was an unfortunate phrase for me to use during the intake. Unsafe is a psychiatric code word for suicidal, which I was not, although I was many other things. I hadn't said anything about a conspiracy. Unsafe might have triggered the hospital's belief, its own delusion, that I felt unsafe due to a paranoid belief a conspiracy of people out to do me harm. The hospital maintained for the remainder of my stay that I had come in feeling unsafe with delusions of persecution. Because unsafe doubled as suicidal, I was considered a danger to myself. Even though I voluntarily walked into the ER for help, unsafe meant that I was considered to be involuntarily hospitalized, which also meant that I was locked down in the rural Louisiana hospital on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain until the doctor gave me permission to leave. I did not know how long that would be. Thank you.
2: That was so great, thank you. You're such a great reader. Yeah. Um, hi, Michelle. I'm going to read from um, my book Against Memoir, and it starts, it's an essay collection, so it goes a lot of different places. But The first essay is, um, I, I was asked to write the introduction to a new edition of um, Valerie Solanas' Scum Manifesto, so that's what it is, and if you don't know who Valerie Solanas is, get on it. Um, <laughs> she's, you know, perhaps most famous for having shot Andy Warhol, but she was a writer and, and a playwright. Um, in New York City and so there's that and then it's followed by a piece I wrote about um, uh, a work of Andy Warhol's called Andy Warhol's self-portrait so I'm gonna read a little bit of both of them Um, okay let me see I'm thinking that going totally fucking insane is a completely rational outcome for an intelligent woman in this society and I think this idea only becomes more solid the farther back in history you go The writer Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, a supporter of Valerie during her dark days, says, I look at someone like Dorothy Allison, who was a teenager when we started rabble-rousing, and how she testifies that it was women's liberation that saved her life. Here's a person that was routinely raped by her stepfather for her entire childhood, and from the time she was about eight years old, lived in the most horrible conditions. She was the very kind of person who could have ended up like Valerie Solanas, had women's liberation not been there. I live in a large community of would-be Valeries, queer people, formerly or presently female, many of whom have survived the violence of their heterosexual families. Writers with sharp intellects and incredible talent whose stories are routinely rejected from the still male-dominated literary worlds, both mainstream and underground, independent and corporate. Author Red Jordan Orobito, in a review of the San Francisco production of Valerie's contested play, Up Your Ass, writes, The reason I'd like to get on my knees and give Valerie a blow job is because I identify with her and know she needed more joy. So much of my own life was hell, being a butch dyke, now trans man, typing manuscripts in a hotel room, lonely, unpublished, not a dime to my name, not a friend in sight, and finding John's a lot easier to get than the love of a woman. To be living so low yet so close to the largest artist of your time, to have caught his interest and been put in his films, All around you, ideas are flying, becoming real. To be so near to power, to hand him your work, to know how he could help you, to hope that he would. Did you type this yourself? I'm so impressed. You should come type for us, Valerie. This is what Andy reportedly said as he received it, the it being Valerie's play, Up Your Ass. That he never returned the play, the sole copy in a time before computers and Kinko's, Never mind producing it, is history. The existence of Up Your Ass in Warhol's archives at his namesake museum in Pittsburgh suggests the artist did indeed have her work the whole time. Why didn't he just give it back to her? She probably wasn't worth his time. Um, that's why she shot him, is that he wouldn't give, you know, return the play and, and a lot of other ideas that she had stemming from that. Genderqueer Valerie, a big dyke. On top of everything, she walked around in her Newsy hat, her scruffy hair, baggy men's clothing, cursing and smoking. It's irresistible to think of Valerie in 2013 when templates exist for so many genders. Would she be a butch dyke? A genderqueer in-betweener bashing the gender binary? Would she transition, after all that, to male? She certainly wouldn't be the first trans man with some rabid man-hating in her past. Brilliantly minded, bold enough to present herself honestly, she took the village voice to task in 1977 for writing that she wasn't a lesbian. I consider the part where you said she's not a lesbian to be serious libel during a time when writing about someone actually being a lesbian was grounds for a very profitable libel case. The way it was worded gave the impression that I'm heterosexual, you know? Valerie's understanding of gender was limited by her place and time. The manifesto's fatal flaw is also the very thing it requires to exist, strict adherence to a binary gender system and its attendant biological determinism, all in spite of Valerie routinely being in the company of trans women, such as Jackie Curtis, Holly Woodlawn, and Candy Darling, who lived in the same SRO hotel. Perhaps it is the influence of these women that inspired Valerie to allow for the survival of faggots who, by their shimmering, flaming example, encourage other men to demand themselves and thereby make themselves relatively inoffensive. I read faggots in this entry to include queens and transgender women, as there was scant consciousness about trans lives, and faggot existed as a catch-all slur for anyone presenting as queer or genderqueer. I think that's all I wanted to read from that part. Um, Oh, no, 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 I did want to read a little more, sorry. Again and again, as one reads the manifesto, one asks, what the hell is this? It is so, so funny that it's hard for me not to condemn anyone bothered by it as painfully lacking a sense of humor. Check this out. Scum will conduct turd sessions at which every male present will give a speech beginning with the sentence, I am a turd, a lowly abject turd, (laughs) then proceed to list all the ways in which he is. His reward for doing so will be the opportunity to fraternize after the session for a whole solid hour with the scum who will be present. (laughs) Hilarious and begging for a performance art enactment, scum is also a very unfunny critique of American culture then and now, delivered with the fearlessness of someone so thoroughly rejected by the system that she has nothing left to lose. Many of Valerie's notions are excellent and plausible, such as scum will forcibly relieve bus drivers, cab drivers, and subway token sellers of their jobs, and run buses and cabs and dispense free tokens to the public, clearly the vision of a broke New Yorker. The manifesto is as much a call for a class war as a gender apocalypse with eliminating the money system coming in behind overthrowing the government and before destroying the male sex in the opening mission statement. Indeed, the hysteria at a woman threatening to kill men within a culture where men kill women regularly has been so great as to even now distract from the class rage inherent in the book. Is that why Valerie never found a home among her feminist peers? Although Valerie worked and wrote alongside the tremendous second wave feminist revolution of the 60s and 70s, Alice Eccles writes in her history, Daring to be Bad, Radical Feminism in America, 1965 to 1975. Radical feminists in New York Radical Women knew next to nothing about Solanus until she shot and nearly killed pop artist Andy Warhol in June 1968. Valerie had been to college, but every academic line she writes is followed by something completely potty mouthed or shocking. Her writing has less stylistically in common with feminist writings of the time, and more in common with the absurdist manifestos of art movements, or with punk rock, which hadn't even happened yet. According to filmmaker Mary Heron, who went on to memorialize Valerie with the wonderful film I Shot Andy Warhol, the Scum Manifesto is deadpan, logical, elegantly comical, a strange juxtaposition, as if Oscar Wilde had decided to become a terrorist declares the Special Collections Library of Duke University, Solanus is not generally considered to be part of the Women's Liberation Movement. Who will claim her? So I'm gonna stop there. And now this is pieces called Andy Warhol Self-Portrait and I wrote it to read in front of the actual portrait um, at San Francisco MoMA during an anniversary celebration they were having. In my home there was no art and in my schooling there was no art, but Andy Warhol was so big that even my family knew about his Campbell's soup cans. Is that art? My family didn't think so. My family were the sort of people who believed that art was a scam pulled by high-class grifters. (laughs) I could do that, was a frequent and appropriate response. (laughs) My family was insulted that an artist, a rich person, would try to pass off shit from our pantry, dented cans of soup, a box of Brillo pads for scrubbing the hamburger helper from the frying pan as art. It was like he was making a joke of them and they weren't going to help him out by going along with it and calling it art. That's not art. But Andy was from Pittsburgh. (laughs) He loved Coca-Cola because everyone drank it, the rich and the poor. Andy's American supermarket was a sort of kingdom of heaven, its narrow automatic glass doors a bit tough for the rich to slide through. Andy said, art is what you can get away with, and Andy got away with it, laughing all the way to the bank, as my mother would say. He started painting money because it was his most favorite thing, and really, isn't money everyone's most favorite thing? I woke up thinking about money this morning, like a lover who haunted my sleep. <laughs> Lying in my bed, I wondered where my money was. Would my money run out on me? What could I do to make my money stick around? <laughs> Andy kept it real about the fake, sort of humbly authentic within the land of total artifice he both observed and cultivated. He wanted to be plastic. He wanted everything to be identical. When not saying, um, he said the most marvelous, marvelous honest things, like a crazy bewigged oracle, his tone total quaalude. An artist is someone who produces things that people don't need to have. Now that sounds like my family talking. (laughs) Chelsea, Massachusetts is a lot like Pittsburgh. I act like I got Andy, but really I didn't know anything. And there was art in my house. It came from these parties my mother hosted, home interior, like a Tupperware party. A bunch of women came over and my mother baked brownies from a box and the home interior woman brought all these little suitcases. When she opened them up, the inside was wallpapered and hung with a sconce and a bronze butterfly. You purchased the whole set and your house could look like the inside of the suitcase. My stepfather, a nurse, was an artist in the tradition of Bob Ross, whose kit he purchased and whose televised direction he would come to follow. He would also trace Disney characters in Magic Marker to woo my mother. This is all very Warholian, isn't it? What is the difference between my stepfather tracing a drawing of Mickey and Minnie outside Cinderella's castle and Andy's soup can? Is it the difference between Carnegie Mellon and the free nursing school at the VA hospital? Or is it the difference that Warhol may have loved the soup can, really loved it, but he didn't believe in it? Or he believed in it, but he could see himself believing in it, which broke a certain spell. My family totally believed in Disney. They went bankrupt taking so many vacations to Disney World, going on Disney cruises, where sculptures of Donald Duck carved from butter adorn the buffet table. (laughs) They have no distance from Disney and no distance from their belief in Disney. In their world, Campbell's soup cans contain soup, and soup contains warmth and nutrition, and maybe even love. My stepfather believes in the Eeyore he is tracing with his Sharpie, which totally ruins it. (laughs) Sometime during the 80s in my parents' home in Massachusetts, I woke up to the world around me. I started to see the produced world, the world of soup cans and cartoon mice and home interior butterfly wall sconces, and got that taking this world seriously was the wrong way to live. But raging against it wouldn't work either. What a drag that would be to fight the landscape all day, every day. Like a maddening Zen parable, Andy's way was the proper way, gleefully embracing the produced world while seeing through its bullshit and all the while observing yourself in the midst of it for you are part of the produced world. And so there must be a way to embrace yourself as well while not taking yourself too seriously. This is Andy Warhol's middle path. Touring with the sex workers art show tour, I tried to convince the performers to all get matching dollar sign tattoos. It's the sex workers art show tour, not the sex workers money show, snapped one hooker. If I believed in that hooker's dollar, I wouldn't want it on my body either. But there is a dollar behind the dollar winking at you like a Warhol soup can, and I watch myself loving it. I'm so going to get that tattoo. I couldn't believe it when I learned Andy Warhol died. I could hear it from a radio, I heard it from a radio DJ in my bedroom when I was 16, from his gallbladder. Gallbladder seemed like something poor old people died from, wasn't he rich? His work sold for the most work has ever sold for, and still he died the death of an immigrant from Pittsburgh. I was sad, knowing little about his art, I loved Andy the artist, that you the person can be the art because your hair is so big and your suit so stiffly wonderful and you say weird and witty things and hang out with colorful people. And most of all, most importantly, you see the world in this very special way and what you see is true. Fearing I had no talent but yearning deeply for the excitement of a creative person's life, I clung to Andy Warhol. Plus, I too had big hair and an unpopular way of seeing the world and so far this had not been celebrated. How could I market my point of view and become so exceptional, so famous like Andy Warhol? I wanted to run away from home to New York City where everyone spectacular lived, away from teenagers who would laugh at your exquisite hairdo, away from crabby Disney-loving parents who always said what was not art but never ever said what was. I wanted to find Andy. When I wonder now about which of his pieces I like best, I imagine him lying in his coffin in a cashmere suit and sunglasses, his perfect wig glued to his head. I never think that people die, Andy Warhol said. They just go to department stores. (laughs) Thank you. (sighs) So here we are in Denver. How are you doing? I'm okay. (laughs) Um, What questions do I have for us to talk about? um, I wanted to know how you, I, I'm, I'm teaching an online writing class right now, um, like literally I have to go back to my hotel when this is all done and like critique the work and it's happening every night this week. And I'm struck as I often am when I work with writers um, who maybe you know, don't have a book yet, um, are working on it, how like daring to even call yourself a writer and like claim that identity is so fraught, yeah. you know? um, When did you, when and how did you dare to call yourself a writer?
1: It's funny because i I think I never really um, took this question to be the the very precious thing that many other people consider. like I'm thinking about this because when I was sixteen, I had a boyfriend and I met him at this like art summer camp, and it was um you had to like apply and it was uh, you uh, you would become like a California art scholar if you um. James Franco went to this art camp.
0: <laughs> um,
1: not in the same year I went, but it was, it was the same one. Um, and so I met this guy, he was my fir- the first like, boy I had ever kissed, anyway. Um, and uh, he was a visual artist. And back then, like, I, um, I was known more for my visual art than I was for writing, um, even though I would gotten into this summer art camp for writing. And so I like, uh, after the summer art camp, like I was still kind of in touch with this, this guy, even though we, were, we weren't um, seeing each other anymore. <laughs> um, and I remember um, like I, we had these like uh, internet journals. This was like before blogs and before live journal. And this was like back when like you had to like HTML your own website if you wanted an online journal. And I remember in one of my online journals on my online website, I called myself an artist and he got so mad at me. Like he I think he wrote um, he wrote a screed on his own online (laughs) website journal about how he knew this this fraud of a a girl (laughs) who called herself an artist and how this was such an awful thing because he had struggled and struggled and struggled for years over whether or not to call himself an artist. And here was this know-nothing hooligan (laughs) who who didn't even get into the summer school for visual art. She was a writer who was calling herself an artist. And I remember I was just so taken aback when I read this this screen of his. I was like, "Geez, like what what What's up with that guy?" Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So I I think like that was when that was I kind of, I think like the first time I realized that some people really take that kind of thing very very preciously. Yeah. Um, and maybe there have been times where I've um, where I felt a little bit more precious about the, using the word writer or using the word artist. Like I, I definitely would not call myself an artist now, um, but I think for the most part, like I've been calling myself a writer ever since I was able to hold a pen. Mm-hmm. How about you? Yeah,
2: I mean, if you write, you're a writer. Yeah, I felt, I felt cool about claiming it, you know, I, ca- I kind of, started writing, ser- taking it, like I've written my whole life, but then when I hit 22 and kind of was just like, oh, okay, like what am I gonna do with my life? You know, like what's important to me? And I'm like, I'm gonna focus on writing. And it happened at the same time where I sort of had this like lesbian feminist nervous breakdown and like my mind was blowing about all this other stuff. And I'm like, oh, and I'm queer and I'm a feminist. So it just seemed like another, I was collecting identities. So yeah. it seemed real, it was like, and I'm that too, you know, yeah. don't you dare tell me I'm not, you know, I just yeah. had an attitude yeah. problem about it. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I started writing seriously um, at all of the open mics that were happening around San Francisco in the 90s, which it was like a whole scene, it was really alive. It was very DIY. Um, and
1: so it was the
2: spirit of that world to just be like,
1: I'm a poet, you know. And so you, you didn't really encounter did you encounter people challenging this kind of self-identification? No, I mean, people would challenge if you were a good poet or not. Maybe you were a poet that
2: sucked, you know, uh-huh. but nobody yeah. would say, shitty like, you're poet. not a poet. Like, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. shitty poet. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. But nobody, yeah, nobody would really challenge that. No,
1: mm-hmm.
2: no, it was very, a very, like, self-empowering scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... And there were people who would get up and they really weren't poets. <laughs> just, like I mean it was so like they were just they were I mean they were I guess they were doing something. I mean there was definitely like a lot like a lot of dudes who just needed attention and they could just they had it every night. What like, were they, they could doing go if somewhere. It wasn't like taking their shirt off, burping in the mic, yelling, you know, just like <laughs> It was insane. Like yelling words or just yelling? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I don't, you know, there was, like, a lot of acting out. And then there was also real, you know, real writing and real poetry happening. It was all happening at once. Yeah. And everyone got heckled. Like, you could be this great poet who just, like, you know, had a full ride to some university and you would get heckled alongside the person burping into the microphone and just up there talking about how their girlfriend's a bitch. Like, there was a lot of... Like due to like Bukowski you know, mm. so it was like a lot of Bukowski mm. posturing, you know. There was a lot of that happening. Mm. Yeah. So
1: it was uh okay. It was exciting.
3: <laughs> Do you I feel mean, like I, that was like a it. trial
1: by fire to get the heckled? Like Yeah, it was. Do you think there's not enough heckling in contemporary? I think that in general, you know, artists and writers writing. have it too easy yeah. nowadays. They
2: they should have to I mean it. It definitely shaped the kind of writer that I am, that I had to get up on stage and believe in my work. You're just like, like, oh my God, I could
1: get heckled at any moment. Oh my
2: God, okay. Yeah, and also, like, before you even got heckled, like, you had to tell people to shut up, especially if it was happening in a bar, as Mm -hmm. lots of them would, because people were just, like, chattering, 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 and you're getting up there, and and you would just have to be, like, shut up. People would be like, whoa, you know? Mm -hmm. But they liked that. It was like the Wild West. Like, that was, it was one of those things that's like, then they would respect you they, by they I mean uh, the drug addicts who were <laughs>
1: sitting in the front row, you know, like, yeah. I feel like that kind times. of almost, almost like privileges funny stuff though, because I, I feel like funny no, it's stuff true. tends to no, kind you're of capture right. attention Or more. incredibly melodramatic, high
2: emotions, five minutes. What, are you gonna traumatize everyone? Or are you yeah. gonna make everyone laugh? It, trauma porn, yeah. funny stuff. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> angry, anger. Humor, shocking, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, for sure. It really, it really did do that. Um, so yeah, so uh, that was a lot of the vibe of a lot of my of the poems I was writing at first. Okay. What was what was the vibe of your earlier stuff? Like, what were
1: you? Um, so back to this summer school, <laughs> okay, this is very formative. This is a very formative summer for me. Um, I I did my first uh, like reading. Um, And at this reading, I read a story. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna tell you what the story was, just in a very short, I'm just gonna try to tell it. And don't heckle me, or I'm just gonna (laughs)
2: leave.
1: There's a very nice like space odyssey place back there, and I'm just gonna (laughs) hide. Hide back there and explore space. Um, anyway, no. So it was like this. It was like this very melodramatic, like teenage esme story about um, this this couple and the the uh, this this teen couple and the guy says, "How much do you love me?" And then his girlfriend says, "I love you so much." And he goes, "Like, no. How much do you really, really love me?" And then so he says like, well, would you love me if I had no skin? And she's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, of course I would love you if you had no skin. <laughs> and then so he's like, okay, well, and then he gets a potato peeler from the kitchen. And so like, I, I got I got all these like I I went and researched this so I like. Found out the names of all these bones and like muscles and yeah, things like that. Amazing. So like during the story, he keeps insisting, "Do you love me?" And he's like skinning himself. And so like, but he leaves his face for last. Like he's he keeps like skinning. He's like skinning his arms and his legs and stuff like that. And remember, I'm reading this in front of like 300 teens or something at this oh like God. summer camp and then at the very end he's like losing all this blood and <laughs> and then and then finally he has his face left to do and then he like skins his face and he says like and then the and then the girl can't handle it she turns away and she goes i don't i don't love you anymore and then he dies <laughs> You would have been my, like, I would have tried so hard to make you my
2: best friend. I was a teenager at that camp. I would have been like, oh my God, this girl is so cool. So
1: that was, that was the kind of stuff I was writing. Nice.
2: (laughs) Do you still have it somewhere? I mean, it's in here, you uh, know? Yeah, <laughs>
1: you definitely still have it. I mean, it's probably not it. gonna make my next short story collection. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's
2: it makes me here. think of that, there's that really great Rebecca Brown short story that's sort of like a metaphor for intense lesbian codependency, where like one partner like cuts their arm off and then the other like blow torches their ear, or like one blind, <laughs> like one blonde goes blonde like makes themselves blind. I mean that's goes.
1: absolutely what this story was for me. It was yes. like all about codependence. Just like early early be, Rebecca yes. Brown. Early early like all of my early queer non-queer relationships. Yeah all of them. All of them were like
2: that. Yeah. Um, what's your writing process like? Do you have like superstitions um, and habits? and or best practices?
1: Um, For the last book I wrote, uh, so for this book, um, uh, I had one album that I listened to over and over again and it was Lana Del Rey's (laughs) Ultraviolence. And I would listen to it from beginning to end and then that would be the end of my writing for the day.
2: Wow,
1: Um, and I have a new album for this new book that I'm working on, but I can't say what it is until I'm done with it and it's published. How about you? Um, I used to have a lot of superstitions.
2: Like I used to write long—I wrote longhand until I got sober, Um, and then I was like, "Oh, alcohol wasn't slowing my hand down, (laughs) and so my hand would get cramped." But I would just like—I felt like notebooks were magic. Until the magic ran out. The magic would just like run out of a notebook. I would just decide, this notebook's yeah. no good anymore. It was so wasteful. There'd be like, you know, two thirds of a notebook left, but I'd be like, nope, it's bad. It's gone it's gone sour. And I was really into um, like pa- these Paper Mate blue and white pens, they don't make mm. anymore. So, and then just other things like if I, when, 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 I, when I think about it, it's really like superstitions that it's almost like, if this happens, I don't have to write today. It's like, is that what's really oh, going on in my yeah, head? It's know, it's like, but, yeah, it's procrastination. Yeah, totally. It's like, oh, if I've already been online answering emails, the magic's gone. I can't do it. Or mm. if I get started too late in the day, or, oh, I only have an hour. It's not enough time. You know. And I have been in situations that's challenged all of those things, like when they stopped making my blue and white paper mate pen life are like, on. oh,
1: can't write anymore. I yeah. guess that's, that's the end of my career. And it's, it's all superstition. It's <laughs> like yeah. you
2: actually, like I actually can check a bunch of emails, have an hour in a shitty pen
1: and write something. Yeah. You know, it's like, and whatever, it's it's what it is. But yeah, like yeah. I, I, I don't have too many rituals that I, I have a lot of rituals in my life in general, um, but I tend to not. Try to get too precious about writing rituals. That's good. Um, practice. Like, like with the music thing. Like, I did that for like, for the collective schizophrenia, but I really only did it like for a certain portion of the book. And then with this, with this new book, like I listen to this one album, but I don't always feel like listening to it, so I just don't. Sometimes I just listen to like Bachelor Recap podcasts while I'm writing. <laughs> That's incredible that you can listen to language while you're
2: writing and it yeah doesn't distract I, you.
1: I it does distract me <laughs> um, but somehow i've i i do this thing where I can like feel my brain like splitting off into these like tracks wow, where like part of my brain is listening to i don't know it's
2: like are you like decoying like your' Critical part of your brain that could get in the way of
1: your flow and being like, I don't hey, need critical that, brain. That sounds very fancy, but well, I don't, I don't really know what it is. I always think is. of yeah. writing like
2: that, though. That there's like the part of my brain
1: that can just get in the flow and barf a bunch of text and, you know, and, and I do feel like it has something to do with boredom. Like mm-hmm. I, like there, the, the part of me that gets bored very easily is easily distracted by my bachelor podcasts. I don't actually watch The Bachelor, by the way. I just listen to recaps. (laughs) I'm really into Bachelor recaps, but I don't watch the show. That's hilarious.
2: (laughs) That's really funny. My um, partner loves The Bachelor and I've wasted like months, probably of my life, watching, getting sucked into it, and then I finally said no more. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing that's so maddening about it is that it's literally the same exact oh, show Oh, totally. Every, yeah. I was like, no, of course they're gonna do that. No, you know, and it's yeah. like I was like, this makes me feel crazy. Yeah. Like I could be living life. I could be cleaning. Like th- anything would be better than this.
3: Yeah.
1: What do you What do you watch? Do you watch TV? Um, I, I don't really watch TV. Um. TV is one of those things that I—that is something that my partner and I do together. Mm-hmm. Like you know, people say that like TV is not a togetherness activity. It is for it me. Totally, it's for me too. Like yeah. because I don't, I can't watch. I have a very hard time watching TV by myself. Like I get too bored. I'll I'll want to like do something else mm-hmm. while I'm watching TV. Um, so there are basically no shows I will watch by myself. Um, the most recent thing we watched together was Fleabag season two. Oh, I haven't seen it and, yet. I love season and, one, and it was really good. Mm-hmm. I really loved it. I bet. Um. And um, yeah. We, but but in general, we don't watch a lot of TV. Um, we we do watch uh, women's soccer. Cool. Um, I got into women's soccer in the two thousand fifteen. Yeah. Well, we won that not this past World Cup, but the World Cup before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. I don't uh, know, how about you, what do you watch?
2: Um, not uh, The Bachelor. Not The Bachelor. I, I'm not watch, I mean, yeah, we, me and my, I watch TV with my partner too, like I can't really watch it by myself. Um, it doesn't ever feel interesting or attractive, but I like to watch and then like like, lay on my partner's lap so that they're captive and have to pet my head and then watch. <laughs> like right now we're watching The Handmaid's Tale. Trying to actually finish before we start something else, which we kind of go willy-nilly, and we'll get we, we'll get really into a, a show, and then just not be in the mood for it one night and watch something else, and then never go back to that show, and it would make me crazy, and we would have almost have fights about it. I'd be like, "Are we watching that show still, or have we stopped watching that show?" And my partner's like, "I don't know, we're still watching." I was like, "Well, we haven't watched it. We haven't watched it. We haven't watched it. Watched Are we gotta finish in. Six Weeks. Yeah, I'm like, are we finishing Homeland? Are we finishing that one about you know the sex researchers? Are we finish? Are we gonna watch <laughs> the one about the lady comedian? Like what? We just let them all. Mrs. Go. Maisel. Mrs. Maisel. There's so much good, but it's part of the problem with TV right now being so good, right? It's there's like there's a lot of
1: TV. Yeah, now.
2: and now like I don't know, my partner recently isn't like like I'll come home, they'll be like, listen, I have to say something. I watched the first three episodes of Euphoria. I really think you have to watch it, and I'm just
1: like. I'm never going to watch it now, because you fucking did that, you know? So... That's another thing is that I am very resistant to watching things when people tell me to watch them. Like, I, I'm very stubborn See, That's the only in that way that way. I watch them. No, the way you can get me to... Well, the only way you can get me to watch something basically is you have to trick me into it. So you have to get me into the room somehow while I'm doing something else, and then turn on the tv and you'll be and i'll be like are you watching tv and they're like no no ignore this i'm just i'm just <laughs> just for the noise just for the noise and then you have to like get me to like somehow get sucked into it that's and then hilarious bef- and then before i know it i'm on like episode four and yeah because it's the glowing box that sucks your yeah. brain in
2: what sign are you
1: what sign yeah, am what I? Yeah, what
2: astrological sign are you? I am
1: a Gemini yes, Sun. the best. Sign. I'm a Capricorn rising, and well I'm done. a Taurus Moon. Well done. Scorpio Midheaven.
2: Oh, okay. I don't. I don't get the Midheaven. Yeah. I don't quite. Anyway,
1: validate yeah. it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. Cool. What? Why?
2: What? What, because how do you live with knowing a person if you don't know their sign? <laughs> I've talked to you for way too long today to not know your sign. It felt weird. felt like if I waited too long, more longer to ask you, then
1: yeah, it just, yeah. yeah. I got to know this is important information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What are your reading habits? Like, how, how do you have like reading, um, reading, yeah, reading habits, yeah. like ways you read or like. Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I have a really hard time validating reading books as part of my job, even though it is. It's fucking part of your job if you're a writer to read books, but it always feels like the biggest luxury thing to do. Like, you know, like I, I have some day, I try to sort of organize days, like this is a day where I'm gonna just work and take care of business, or this day I'm gonna write, and and you know, I sometimes I'm just like, oh, I should have a day where I just read, and it's just like, <gasps> it's like going to the spa all day. Like, how can, <laughs> You know, and I think it's connected to like just growing up super working class. So that like, if your job isn't suffer something that makes you suffer and put you in immense pain, then you're not really working. You're a fucking asshole who's like trying to get over on good, hardworking people. So I have this like really funny relationship with it, but it's my favorite thing in the world to do. And I, a couple years ago, I realized that I hadn't finished a novel in like forever, and I was on my phone all the time. Um, I have a four-year-old, so I have less time for reading, and it's just so easy to just kind of pick up my phone and look at it, but um, especially now that he's older, I can read more, so I started doing a thing where I can, I can look at my phone after I've finished a few chapters of books, and so I kind of have a whole bunch of books going at the same time. Um, Wait, finished a few chapters of writing? No, of reading, oh, okay. of reading. Okay. So it's just like in the morning when I wake up and I'm drinking my coffee, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and my son's ruining his life with YouTube, which I allow. I'm just like, with the way we talk about him, we're like, do you see what he watches as if we're not his parents allowing no. that to happen? we like, he's watching unboxing videos. They're such like trash, you know? Yeah. But they're harmless, I guess. How do you um, decide what to, wa- to read? How do you decide? History? Like, I literally have a stack and I do any, Meeny, Miney, Mo. And then that's what I'll read. And then when I finish a book, I have so much unfinished book- like books that I bought that are just sitting there. I have that problem. That there's a name for it in Japanese where you just buy yeah, books and don't yeah. read them. I've I I also
1: heard of this book. Bu- it's word. so cool
2: because yeah, you're yeah. like, oh, it's a thing. It's not me being yeah. fucked up. Like, yeah. this is a thing yeah. that yeah. is hu- part of the human experience and I'm yeah. human and I can embrace it. Yeah. So um, so I just, I, I brought, the book I brought with me on this trip is The Mars Room. I've been waiting for it to come out on in paperback so I could buy it. And so I started reading that.
1: Um, do you, how do you choose what books to to acquire? Like, do, so is it recommendation? Like personal recommendations? It's like personal or recommendations. Reviews?
2: It's all, everything. It's like the ether. I think books coming at me from the ether, or something mm-hmm. reaching critical mass, where I'll I'll have heard about a book enough times. Um, I'll again, any, meeny, money, mo in a bookstore. I'll be like, okay, there's like seven different books I want, and I'll just sort of pick one. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like I feel like it's my like when I buy a book in an independent bookstore, I basically feel like I'm giving money to like the, the like ACLU or Planned Parenthood or something. So yeah. I also feel like yeah, I've for got sure. to buy this book, you yeah. know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, so I keep buying them for that reason too. But yeah, I just did an event <laughs> at Skylight. And I was like, got to keep Skylight in business. Got to buy, yeah, you know, Skylight's a book for great. my son and a book yeah. for me and a book for my wife. And <laughs> yeah. How about you? What's your reading habits like?
1: Um, so I grew up with an extremely idiosyncratic way of reading. I did not, uh, like once I got past a certain age where where I think I read basically all the books in my school library, um, I would just pick up books that looked like they had cool covers or like Mm -hmm. had cool titles. I didn't understand the idea of like classics because my parents were immigrants and so like they, I didn't know this the concept of like classics or like what books were like considered good to read, um, and so I really would choose like just books that looked cool. Um, I'm I'm in a weird place right now with books in that uh, I do feel like reading is work because I am asked to to moderate events a totally. lot, and I um, am asked to blurb a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually taking a break from blurbing because it is very you have to. Yeah. It will eat I, your life. It's it, it really it really will eat your life and I also don't want to become that person who I'm not gonna say their name because I feel like I, then it would just it's be me. piling on. It's, it's not. Me. It's not you. No, it is me. But there was it this person that many of you may know, but like a couple of years ago, like their name became synonymous with that person whose name is on every single book because they blurb everything. Um, it was like a. It became like a joke in the literary community. Um, so that person took a break for a long time. It's only recently I've started to see them uh, blurb again. <laughs> Uh, but I was like, oh god, don't want to become that. Um, so, uh, but maybe that's a good way for people to stop asking you. I mean, <laughs> Burn it's, yeah, My name is I don't nothing. know. Yeah, and then um, so so yeah, I've I've I'm I've been reading a lot, but I feel like almost eighty to ninety percent of the books that I've read this year have been for the purposes of blurbing or for doing events with other humans. And that's not necessarily bad because I don't blur books that I don't like, and which can be very awkward. And um, I don't—I generally don't do events with people that I don't want to do events like that. I don't want to do events with. Um, so I have read a lot of really good books, but there's still this feeling of, um, yeah, just like the, this feeling of like work it's work like mm-hmm. it's it's there's no kind of um like you're constantly like making notes or like thinking about what what insightful question you're going to ask or like you know <laughs> right what, uh, in the, and such so um but i've read some really great books lately um i've been shouting from the rooftops um this book by brandon taylor um that's coming out from Riverhead in 2020, and uh, I almost made my blurb that it was the best debut that I'd read in the last 15 years, but I felt like it was a little bit too uh, extreme of a blurb to give, (laughs) so I toned it down and said it was one of the best debuts I'd read (laughs) in the last decade, which I still feel like is a very nice blurb, Yeah, Um, but it's very good. It's called Real Life, and it's coming out. Um, it's coming out next year. Um, but yeah, there are so many books, and there are so many good books, and uh, I'm just never gonna get to read all the books. No. And, uh, but they're there
2: forever. We re- like you don't have to read them when they're on the bestseller list. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You can read them in ten more years.
1: Yeah. And then call
2: that person and be like, "Remember that book that you wrote that was like a big hit ten years ago? Like I read it. Yeah. I get it. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And we Good just job. recently, like two weeks ago, bought four new bookcases because wow. there were just too many stacks of books all over the house. Mm-hmm. Like it was too much. Yeah. But they're almost like all full now. <laughs> the new ones have already been filled yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You'll like grow to the size of your tank yeah. with your books. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, how has it been for you in the aftermath of? Um, schizophrenia is with having put such a personal work out into the world?
1: Um, To be completely honest, there have been mostly really, really, really wonderful things that have happened with this book. And almost every day, basically every day, I get at least one or two really nice Um, messages or notes or something um, that really moved me Um, I think the what I wasn't really anticipating when the book came out well first I didn't anticipate that it would get the attention that it did Um, and so I so I didn't. I wasn't anticipating the kind of like expo- exposure I would mm-hmm. get, and 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 um, and with that exposure, comes this feeling of being very vulnerable, which is not only um, just kind of like you and your soul and your heart feel very vulnerable, but actual like, vul- like you actually are vulnerable. Like when I was on my um, U.S. tour, I had a couple of like security issues where um, there were just like weird, weird things happening where like um, just some unpleasant things um, or like people trying to like hack into my email and, oh and just or just like sending these. Anyway, some just some just like really unpleasant things that were happening and and that comes with like just being more known. And, um, and also it, and so like a little bit less scary, but also not, not great, um, like less like threatening, but like also something that I was learning to deal with is kind of like the emotional labor that happens when you write about something that's like very personal that a lot of people really want to um, like share their um, share their stuff with you, mm-hmm. and uh, and there were just a lot of times where I would just go back to my hotel room and I would be drained because I would not have anything to say to so many people in the signing line or like in the Q&A and Q and other than like I am so sorry but I am not qualified to like answer this question or to like talk to you about this like I i but like I really hope that you know you can find someone to talk to about this cuz you know mm-hmm. it's just like you like it's it's like a it's like you're a writer but you're also like doing a public service totally in a way yeah also yeah and i'm not like a therapist or like a mental health professional right yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pressure to put yeah. on anybody yeah.
2: I, that makes me also i also was wondering if you feel like this work is also a form of activism
1: i So, sometimes I'm not really sure what the difference between activism and advocacy is Mm -hmm. when it comes to talking about mental health stuff Mm -hmm. because, like for example, people will talk to me about like some of the laws I talk about in the book Mm -hmm. about like involuntary hospitalization or like um, involuntary treatment and like I talk about specific laws And I don't, like, come down very hard on one side or another. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like if I did and if I, like, went out there and, like, spoke at, like, you know, City Hall the way I did with the Golden Gate Bridge net thing, like, that would be more, like, activism. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not as much what the book is doing, I think. I think it's more. Just like, like I think it's more advocacy. I think it's more like this is an experience that doesn't get written about a lot, mm-hmm. and when it does get written about a lot, it's mostly written by like loved ones of people who are living with this, or doctors, or or it's just fictionalized. Yeah, in such or some just crazy fictionalized. Way. Yeah. yeah. And so my writing this is hopefully to help people feel less alone, to open up conversations, to ask questions, to get conversations going, um, and to kind of decrease some of the stigmas that are out there. And so whether that's activism or advocacy or whatever you want to call it, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um,
2: I think it's time for us to open up some questions from you guys.
1: All right, thank you so much, uh, Michelle and Esme.
3: Let's go ahead and give them a round of applause. (laughs) All right, and I think we have time
1: for a limited number of questions, so. So they better um, be good. Yeah. Good questions. No comments, only questions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to both of you for uh, enlightening uh, session. I have questions for both of you, but with a limited time. I mean, as, a, as an out gay senior with two bio kids and four adopted kids, lots of questions for Michelle. I mean, I've never heard a uh, queer woman talk about blowjobs, for instance, before. all um, oh, we but talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, talk about publicly. Um, but for Esme, um, as also the father of a, of a kid who has been diagnosed uh, schizophrenic, of one. 11 of his diagnoses, that's one of them. When you, I I presume since it was first person that it was semi, at least, autobiographical, and I wondered, number one, uh, who you saw the target uh, audience being for reading that, and several mentions of the suicide, uh, because that's kind of the stereotype, so many people with that diagnosis wind up Mm self-delivering, which has been a fear of ours. well, for 30-some years. And finally, have you thought about writing something that would uh, be of use to a person who is identified as schizophrenic that would be helpful to him or her?
1: Um, So, uh, the book is, uh, it's it's been called a memoir by a lot of people. Like, the exact same book is marketed in the UK by Penguin as a memoir. just because they don't sell essay collections in the UK, apparently, um, top secret. Um, so yeah, this is a book. Um, it, in large part, um, based on my experience. Um, I, uh, I feel like my. Target audience for the book was basically anybody who was willing to be open to the book and willing to read the book. Um, It wasn't necessarily for people who are living with some form of the schizophrenia, even though that audience has been really um, a wonderful one. Um, I've had all kinds of people come to these events and talk to me and email me and stuff like that. Like I've had like researchers from Mount Sinai and like doctors and therapists and parents and siblings and um, all kinds of people um, read the book and find something from it. So um, I didn't really write it uh, with any kind of target audience. Although I did hope that uh, people with, a similar diagnosis to mine would see themselves in it. Um, and in terms of uh, whether I've ever thought of writing a kind of like more how-to guide or like a more, um, a more uh, like one of those, like a less literary, more like um, psychology-based book of the type that you might find in the psychology section of a bookstore, um, I I haven't uh, mostly because I don't I don't really think I have um, I don't really think I have the expertise for that. Like, other than just the lived expertise of having lived my life, um, I I feel like that's such a heavy. I was gonna say burden, but like it's such a, I wouldn't, I would be too afraid of saying the wrong thing or, or giving the wrong advice, so.
3: Um, this is, I, I guess especially for Esme, but um, Michelle, if you have feedback on it too. I'm really interested in, I've been writing for a long time and as a person um, who's also neurodiverse, I'm realizing how challenging it is for me to like organize <laughs> what yeah. I'm writing into a complete, project and reading your collection. I know you brought in um, documents and evidence and um, materials like that which I've been doing as well in what my topic but I'm just curious if you I know you're doing the craft class on the index card method and just wondering um, if you encountered that challenge of kind of everything swirling and not you know not or in terms of the writing process how do you corral thoughts that may not be organized in the same way that maybe Stephen King or whoever organizes his thoughts and, and what that experience was like for you and how, and
1: Yeah, you. so I write fiction completely differently from how I write nonfiction. And with nonfiction, I could not write, I could not write nonfiction without the index card method that I use, just because there's so much data and involved in the way that I write nonfiction. So if you are going to be there tomorrow, <laughs> I, okay, great. Um, I look forward to seeing you there. Um, hopefully that will be helpful and feel free to ask me as many questions as you want there because that's the reason I do that is that it's hard to corral all of that information. I think it's hard for people to corral all of that information regardless of whether or not they have brain things, but yeah, this has especially been helpful for me.
3: Hi, uh, thank you so much, This was an excellent talk. Um, I guess my question, um, since you both write, uh, this is both of you I suppose, you both write fiction and nonfiction. but I was wondering, specifically with nonfiction, um, when you write either a, an essay or, a, or a, a piece about a particular topic, do you, are you ever surprised or do you ever end up in a place when you finish the piece in, in a different place than when you expected to, to when you started, I would say. Um.
2: Mm. Gosh, I mean, I never fully know where I'm gonna end up while I'm writing. So in a sense, it's always a little bit of a surprise, you know, um, to be, to finish it, you know, and to feel somewhat satisfied with it is always a surprise,
1: <laughs> honestly.
2: Um, the. Gosh, I mean, there's a, a a long essay that I wrote um, in in against memoir, um, and it's uh, it's called Hags in Your Face, and it's about um, it documents a um, a lesbian street gang um, that that existed in San Francisco in the '90s called Hags. And they were all like gender nonconforming, and um, and they, uh, a, a bunch of them passed away, and a lot of the people who survived actually ended up transitioning. Um, so like. They were real gender outsiders that was, even though they identified as lesbians and dykes at the time, they were really big gender outsiders. And the story is so close to my heart. Like I knew knew them not well, but like I was younger than them and I kind of looked up to them. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a lot of interviews with people that I know who were closer to them. And it took me a long time to write it. And when I was done with it, I like took to my bed and sobbed and I've never had a piece do that to me before. It was like, I didn't, I don't know. like there's, it, writing is so subconscious for me. Um, I feel like there's some sort of like energetic breadcrumbs that I somehow laid out and I'm, I laid them out and I'm following them at the same time. And it's, it's like it's kind of a mysterious process. Even, e- even when I'm doing something sort of more linear, like nonfiction, it still feels really mysterious. But I've never had a piece that really felt like so intense to write. I felt such a burden of representing them well. Um, and you know the questions of like, oh, there's so many people who were closer to them, who are also creative people and writers and artists that you know maybe could have told the story. But I had felt like it had been in me for a long time, and I wanted to tell it. So I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking, but that's just what came to mind.
1: Um, I uh, have a s- not not that not the second part, but the first part is true. For me, in that I also write both fiction and nonfiction without knowing where I'm going, I find I find the process of writing very profoundly uninteresting. If I know where it's going, um, there's no discovery for it in it for me. Um, so in fiction, I always know where the story will go up to a bit, up to a certain point. And then I just kind of discover it until the next bit and then so forth. And then it's like this fun, um, this fun hiking in the woods if I enjoyed hiking in the woods, which I don't. <laughs> um, but, um, but the fun thing about uh, nonfiction for me is uh, making connections, which is really special for me. And this is also like where, sorry I'm like sales salesing this this index card thing. <laughs> um, but like the, the thing, the cool thing about the index card thing for me is that like as I'm like assembling a piece using the index cards, like I'll find the connections as I'm as I'm laying out the index cards. And then I'll realize that like this index card, which has this thing written on it that I wrote like two months ago. Like has this logical leap that like links to this index card that I wrote like three days ago based on some article that I read like last week and that and then it's like it feels like magic like it's like it feels amazing. Um, I want to take your class, oh <laughs> my god, I
2: want that amazing feeling, I can imagine. <laughs> so are you putting just like, are the index cards just like everything, like little jumping off points for the book, like anything that you think could kind of go into it?
1: I just put, yeah, just like, okay, cool. all kinds of things yeah. go on the index cards. Cool. Um, and so, uh, and so yeah, uh, it's it's the discovery, like that's so, that's so fun. and so magical and, uh, and that's kind of how, how that happens. And so I kind of write that way until I get to the end and then that's where kind of the, that's how the structure happens and that's how the, the kind of the meaning making comes for me. Um, I think that is all the time for questions that we have. Um, Tattered Cover is outside selling books. Buy all of the books. Maybe buy some more bookshelves to store (laughs) all of the books. (laughs) Um, And I believe we'll have a brief book signing as well. Thank you, Michelle and Asmi.